you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. Thechrisvossshow.com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. Who knew? Almost a thousand podcasts. We decided to make another one. Who who saw that coming after 12 years? Anyway, guys, thanks for tuning in. Be sure to watch the video version of this. It's free for an unlimited time on YouTube. You just go there. You press the subscribe button to the show, Chris Voss at uh, YouTube.com. And uh, you can get, um, I think there's like 4,100 videos that we have up there. You can watch them all, and it's for free for an unlimited time. So you want to capture that while it's still available. Go to goodreads.com for just Chris Voss. See what we're reading and reviewing over there. You can catch the giveaways on my new book coming out October 5th. You can also go to Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all the places the cool kids are at. And you can see all the wonderful things that uh, we're doing over there with the show and all the show features, et cetera, et cetera. So we're excited to announce my new book is coming out. It's called Beacons of Leadership, Inspiring Lessons of Success in Business and Innovation. It's going to be coming out on October 5th, 2021. And I'm really excited for you to get a chance to read this book. It's filled with a multitude of my insightful stories, lessons, my life, and experiences in leadership and character. I give you some of the secrets from my CEO entrepreneurial toolbox that I use to scale my business success, innovate, and build a multitude of companies. I've been a CEO for, uh, what is it, like uh, 33, 35 years now. We talk about leadership, the importance of leadership, how to become a great leader, and how anyone can become a great leader as well. So you can pre-order the book right now wherever fine books are sold, but the best thing to do on getting a pre-order deal is to go to beaconsofleadership.com. That's beaconsofleadership.com. On there, you can find several packages you can take advantage of in ordering the book. And for the same price of what you can get it from someplace else like Amazon, you can get all sorts of extra goodies that we've taken and given away. Uh, Different collectors, limited edition, custom-made numbered book plates that are going to be autographed by me. There's all sorts of other goodies that you can get when you buy the book from beaconsofleadership.com. So be sure to go there, check it out, or order the book wherever fine books are sold. Today, we have an amazing author. It's an honor to have him on. He's written a very interesting tome that I was just waiting for someone to write this book. I'm like, when is someone going to write a book about Peter Thiel? And he has done so. The book is out September 21st, 2021, The Contrarian, Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power by Max Chafkin. He's written this book and put it out. You want to definitely pick it up. He is a features editor and tech reporter at Bloomberg Business Week. His work has also appeared in Fast Company, Vanity Fair, Inc., and the New York Times Magazine. He lives in Queens, New York with his wife and journalist and their children. Welcome to the show, Max. How are you? Hey, how's it going, Chris? Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. And quite the book here. It's uh, it's quite thick and uh, heavy and uh, quite the interesting read because this is an interesting gentleman. So give us your plug so people can find you on the interwebs. Yeah, I am uh, at Chafkin, C-H-A-F-K-I-N on uh, Twitter. I'm on Instagram at mchafkin. My website is maxchafkin.com. You can uh, buy the book there or anywhere where books are sold. Order them up where those fine wow. books are sold. I've never done that before, but that's fun. 
Yeah, yeah, you got the pitch there just downright. That's <laughs> what you always say. Order them where the fine books are sold, not in those alleyways. Stay away yeah, from the alleyways. Yeah. There's needles and stuff. You might uh, hurt yourself in broken glass. So anyway, guys, it's a wonderful having the show. What motivated you want to write this book? Yeah, so I'm basically a technology journalist. I've been um, kind of covering the world of tech of Silicon Valley for the past, I don't know, 15 years. And over that period of time, whatever, it's been an interesting journey. There are lots of things you can talk about there. The industry, the tech industry has grown in just this incredible way. I think it went from being a backwater, basically, where there's a lot of cool stuff happening in tech, but it's not like where the action is. Obviously, the action is on Wall Street. It's these big companies and Facebook, little kind of piddling social network. And over that time, of course, tech, and in particular, kind of these internet companies has gone from being, as I said, a sideshow to being, I would argue, the most significant industry in the world, both in terms of economic influence, obviously, like the, I think nine of the 10 publicly traded companies are tech companies. It's basically everything but Berkshire Hathaway and, and also culturally significant, real, like really the, the sort of center of influence. And so to me, like that's the, big story of this part of the 21st century. And as I'm like covering that into this industry, talking to entrepreneurs over that period of time, Peter Thiel is this guy who's like always a degree removed from pretty much every story. He is this kind of really interesting behind the scenes player. He's a venture capitalist, founder of PayPal, and then became famous as the, the, the Don, as it were, of the PayPal mafia, which is like a group of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who work together. And those people, that group includes Elon Musk, Reid Hoffman, Jeremy Stoppelman, the YouTube guys, Chad Hurley and Steve Chen. And so the, these guys are, are making all these moves. So Teal is this kind of incredibly influential businessman. And then in 2016, something kind of crazy happens, which is in the same month, it comes out that the that there's been this lawsuit against Gawker Media. At the time, was a very big and influential publisher. And there's been this lawsuit going on, the wrestler Hulk Hogan for violation of privacy. It comes out that Peter Thiel is paying Hulk Hogan's legal bills, and he's doing it because he wants to destroy Gawker because I'm, eight years earlier, Gawker had outed him, had disclosed that he's gay, which he'd been out privately, but not in that public way. And as revenge, he had funded this lawsuit. Same month. He it comes out that he is going to be a delegate to Donald Trump in the Republican National Convention. And those two things together, I think, are really interesting. Both obviously the Gawker thing has all kinds of interesting, I don't know, angles that we could talk about. But of course, Silicon Valley is normally seen as a, a left or centrist sort of industry. And obviously, it's in California. The average tech worker probably votes for Democrats. At the time, even like the Republicans in Silicon Valley were not too excited about Donald Trump. And Teal is coming out, not just as a Trump supporter, but as a key supporter, as somebody who's going to be at the convention, who's going to speak at the convention, who's going to endorse him. And that, to me, was really interesting because Teal is an immigrant a gay immigrant technologist who had funded marijuana companies, who's it's basically all the things it's basically the opposite, 180 degree opposite of Donald Trump, both in policy, you would think, and in terms of mannerisms, just kind of style. So those contradictions, I thought, were really interesting. And I thought it was a really cool opportunity to, to tell a story of, of a powerful person whose who's rise who tracks the rise of the tech industry and who has these kind of crazy contradictions um, in there. And, and that's one of the things that always perplexed me about him, too. Like you say, an immigrant, a uh, gentleman who's gay. And it's like, you're going to go support Stephen Miller? Yeah. 
and the Donald Trump agenda of anti-immigrants, anti-gay. It was just it was extraordinary. Let me ask you this off the bat. Is that is this a patriarchy thing or a pan-globalist thing where you reach the point where you're really just more about, he's more interested in just preserving his wealth and stuff because he embraced the alt-right. So I think it's really complicated and really interesting. Obviously, it's like a whole book to, to explain this, but I, I'll throw a couple of thoughts at you in response to that question. Number one, yeah, I think Teal is a rich guy and he's an investor and he's like a real, he's somebody who's like really savvy about, and he's not the only one. I think a good comparison would be like the Koch brothers, but he's like mm -hmm. really savvy about blending his political interests with his business interests. And I think that that's something that, the Cokes did for a long time very successfully. And I think it's something that, that Teal does. I think for Teal, there is this, there's a business project and a political project. Those two projects are connected and they work in synergy. And there are lots of people that's, he's obviously not the only one who does that, but I think in Silicon Valley, that's, he's unique. Um, he's also ideological. And there's this feeling among tech people, I think, in 2016, where it's, oh, well, he couldn't really believe this stuff. He's probably just saying it. He doesn't actually like Trump. That sort of happened actually with a lot of Trump supporters, I think. And I think the truth is, no, he actually likes Trump. There's So yes, there are lots of contradictions, but there are, there are areas of common interest. Now, Teal, despite being an immigrant, is is very hawkish on immigration and has been for a really long time. And then I get into this in the book, but like you can go back in his history, he's been funding hardline, hardcore anti-immigration types for over a decade. And so it's not so it's not totally inconsistent. The other thing, and I think this is totally misunderstood and missed to some extent by people who cover tech because they focus on the whatever, the cool gadgets and all that. But the PayPal mafia, that's Teal's crew, it really has its roots, not at PayPal, but at the Stanford Review, which is this libertarian right-wing magazine that Peter Thiel started as a young man, as an undergraduate at Stanford. It's nowadays, you might use the phrase trollish to describe some of the impulses. It's this kind of provocative, we're trying to mess with the liberal, the liberal establishment. And so he's basically his whole career been all about going after these so-called sacred piety things that that as he sees it, the left believes in. So he wrote an entire book about quote unquote political correctness, basically arguing that Stanford was doing too much, bending over backwards too much to help basically the interests of minorities and to put non-Western curriculum. So it's like this. So that's where he's coming from. And when you think about Donald Trump, that's exactly yeah. That is a big part of Donald Trump's appeal, big part of Donald Trump's appeal, both to somebody like Peter Thiel, but also I think your average kind of like man on the street Trump voter is like, he's a guy who's going to say the thing that's going to get you in trouble. And that is, I think that is a big part of Thiel's psyche and, and it's a big part of the Trump movement. And I think it's very interesting that like somebody who has had such a hand in some of these really influential companies that, that that would appeal to somebody like that. But I think that's the core of it. So yes, some of this, I think, is undoubtedly self-interest. Teal is a brilliant investor. You should always look at the money. I think it's as a business journalist. Like I think you should always look at the money with everybody, including the people who seem, who would yell at you if you even suggested that. But Teal is not somebody like that. He's somebody who really cares about moving money around and maximizing his wealth and things like that. So I think money is part of it, but ideology is another big part of it. And it's something wow. you shouldn't underestimate. That's extraordinary. Now, the book is framed as a biography. Was there any put input from Peter Thiel? So I approached it 
journalistically. And by that, I talked to everybody and anybody. And so that included Teal's friends, former co-work, former employees, people who worked at his investment firms, people who knew him socially. And of course, I approached Teal himself and was in touch with his representatives. And we we met off the record. He, he didn't want to talk to me on the record. And so he, whatever, I, we had some interaction, but he did not you know, participate in the book. It's not an authorized biography. And I was hoping he would you know, talk to me on the record as a journalist. That's obviously that's what you want. But I also think that in some ways he's written a book. It's called Zero to One. It's a really good sort of explanation of his philosophy. And so there is a way to access Peter Thiel's t thoughts. He's given a lot of speeches. Like It's not like he's hiding this stuff. I think what what is like less well known are, number one, the ways in which kind of he has gotten to power and how he maintains his power, like the, the sort of behind the scene in, in, scenes influence, which is not something I think you get if you ask somebody directly. You can't just say, hey, how did you? You can, but you don't often get a very satisfying answer. So I think there's something he, that actually isn't there if you had just asked him directly. And I hope that the, this kind of journalistic approach is a virtue. And I, I'll say one other thing about that. Teal has made a, a real effort to, you hinted at this at the top, to shape the narrative. And I think that's maybe a kind way of putting it, right? He destroyed a, a media outlet for writing things he didn't like, which is obviously not a, not a narrative shaping approach that is available to most people. But of course, he's controlled the narrative. He's very influential. He's a billionaire. He is somebody who, who has a lot of access to shape the narrative. And I think it's important that kind of independent journalism be done about about billionaires about pe and, and people like this because otherwise you're just getting like the you're not getting the real story you're just getting the kind of pr approach which it's totally valid but i don't think it's the only way to learn things yeah this guy is really interesting so you you would say it's a balanced journalistic sort of approach to to this biography yes yes because okay. i i was going through some of the chapters and the first chapter is fuck you world <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. and and some of the different aspects but he's involved in the evil list the deportation force it's really interesting but he's his influence if correct me if i'm wrong but his influence on the facebook board and i think he stands off of it now i think they had to move him during the yeah. trump years he's on the facebook board he's still is he still on the facebook board mm -hmm. and uh, one of the problems i had was he influenced zuckerberg or facebook to make it so that there was a story that came out where they were going to make it so that people who were being persecuted, who were of minority communities on Facebook, would be protected and there could be reporting of them. And they made the inclusion that white people would also be in that protected community. And and that backfired horribly. In fact, I've been suspended twice for calling out the white patriarchy or white people on the thing. I can't type the word white in my Facebook without getting suspended. I have to do WH astrophe te because to my understanding max or not max i'm sorry peter leaned on stop it max no i'm just kidding but peter leaned on zuckerberg to include white people in that from his alt white alt influence is that is that correct that story is not that story is new to me i think mm -hmm. broadly speaking or, or if it's not new I, it's gone in one ear and out the other i think Broadly speaking, Teal has has had a big influence on Facebook. Now, a couple of things are worth saying. Number one, Mark Zuckerberg is the dictator of Facebook. It's it's true at a lot of companies, but it's more true at Facebook because he is the founder, the CEO, the this kind of charismatic. I'm not charismatic because he's not charismatic, but he's like a well known celebrity kind of visionary, and 
he has this super voting stock that allows him to troll the board and basically fire board members at will. So Mark Zuckerberg is is in control of Facebook. If you buy shares in that company, you are buying, you are not buying, it's not like a normal company. You don't, you can go to the annual meeting, but no one's listening to you or your ability to influence what's happening on that company is very limited and including for somebody like Peter Thiel. Mm-hmm. Now, Teal, though, has been the longest serving Facebook, outside Facebook board member. There's There have been, over the years, a couple of sort of purges of the, that's probably, I, I don't know if that's quite the, the right way to put it, but there have been a bunch of board members who've been dismissed over the years. Teal has hung on. And I think that's a testament to his friendship with Mark Zuckerberg, kind of, he was the first outside investor, the first person to really believe in Mark Zuckerberg, which go back to, to 2004, 2005, that is no small thing. Mark Zuckerberg did not look like a very successful person to the average. He's like a Harvard dropout who got in trouble for doing this vaguely. He's doing a gross thing with his classmates. Like that, that was Mark Zuckerberg. That, that's who he was. And Teal saw that and somehow figured out this guy actually is is brilliant. He's going to be a, an amazing CEO and helped set him up to be that. And so I think that there's, I think there's a bond there. And I think there's also a bit of an ideological alliance with Zuckerberg. And Zuckerberg's politics are very hard to figure out. But I think he's, I think Thiel has influenced Zuckerberg, made him pretty libertarian in his feelings about how Facebook should relate to the world. And I also think that Thiel is pretty valuable to Facebook because the company is constantly it's constantly getting attacked by everybody. But especially we'll go back five years ago, and this has continued, the right has been putting a lot of pressure on Facebook to do more to support basically right-wing points of view and to say, hey, you're discriminating against our points of view. And Teal is very valuable there because he's somebody who Mark Zuckerberg can point to and say, look, you're saying I discriminate against you. I have the biggest Trump support in the business world in the corporate world at least on my board like this is not like teal is not like a mainstream republican he's like a steve bannon republican and he's on yeah. the facebook board so i think that's so for all those reasons he's valuable he's a, he's an important ideological ally and i think he has a big influence on mark Zuckerberg. but he can't like make facebook do anything because no one can make uh, facebook do anything which arguably makes his position maybe even more significant because mm-hmm. in a world where like no one can influence mark zuckerberg except mark zuckerberg then this person who's really close who has this bond is going to be important yeah and what's interesting is you saw the rise of donald trump come through probably the leniencies that facebook had where it was just wide open miramar etc etc what's interesting is you open up new revelations that are pretty secretive about his early life in south africa and apartheid and stuff. T- tell us a little bit about that, because that's something new that you've uncovered for the most people probably haven't heard. Yeah, about. yeah. So he's had this kind of interesting. Uh, there are actually weirdly a lot of South Africans, uh, South Africans in Silicon Valley. But uh, Elon Musk is a South African. But uh, mm. so Teal, Teal's family, working class. They're German immigrants, middle class kind of family. And his dad was basically a project manager at Mines, and so that's he had an advanced degree. But it's a kind of job that forces you to wear work boots sometimes and things like that. And and so they lived in, when they were in the US, they lived in this, you know, kind of very middle class or even lower middle class uh, suburb of Silicon Valley, Foster City. And you think he grew up in Silicon Valley, but Foster City is a long way from like the hardcore. It's a long way from the kind of research parks and the parts of Silicon Valley that you really associate with with money. And, and as you say, his dad, who was working at these nuclear power plants, spent some time in South Africa and Southwest Africa, which is now called Namibia, but at the time it was a, basically a, a colony of apartheid South Africa. And that is, that's a weird 
background, just because if, if you know the history, so obviously apartheid, the, the politics of apartheid are something that you would live day to day if you're a white person working there. But also back then, when we're talking about the mid 70s, South Africa was frantically trying to get nuclear weapons. And because it wanted to stop, it, it was worried about losing its position in the world. And so being like working in that industry at that time is definitely going to mean buying in to some politics that I think most of us nowadays would see pretty harshly. And I think when Teal got to Stanford and starts this conservative newspaper, I think there's a there's a there's probably a sense that you know, a bit of a a bit of a like a, a rude awakening to the politics of a university campus, where at the time there was this big movement. Uh, big anti-apartheid movement and running into that coming from a family where, you know, your dad worked within that, those circumstances, I think would be would would lead to some to to some upheaval. And it did. And he became this conservative firebrand at, at Stanford. You convinced that Stanford and really all colleges were these bastions of liberal intolerance. And that became the key to the book I mentioned called The Diversity Myth, which kind of established Teal as a kind of this young right-wing firebrand. Um, hmm. It's an identity that he left as he became an investor, but obviously never really went away and, and, and also connected him to all these other firebrand types. And I think that, that the, the, I talked to a lot of you know, former PayPal people and they talked about the way that they all felt like they were part of this kind of tribe, us against the world. And that's powerful, right? That's mm -hmm. like, people tend to, especially in Silicon Valley, they tend to fetishize this like team of rivals. It's really good. If, if, there's, if you have a lot of different perspectives, that's going to be good. And it is, of course. And I think there are limits and Teal has often run into those limits of conformity, but obviously conformity, loyalty, like those things can create their own momentum. And I think that's one thing that, that if you look at Teal's rise, that's one thing that's different and, and unique about it. It's just, it's like, it cuts against a lot of the kind of norm tropes that, that the, if you read like business books or this is what you should do because Teal often does the exact opposite. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work, but it's always pretty interesting. Yeah, it's really wild uh, about how he came up. It reminds me a lot of Stephen Miller and how he went through high school and college. If you've read her name escapes me right now, but she wrote the book, a uh, biography of him. And he had this, he's been just really angry and bent at stuff all of his life, starting in college. And what was funny was he even dated Mexican girls. And you, you go, what was that trigger? Maybe it was just his upbringing, you know? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I think I do think there's this been this long movement of there's a there's a long proud tradition and proud is maybe not the right word of this kind of provocative conservative conservatism, this kind of performative conservatism, and, mm -hmm. and you see it in somebody. I'm not familiar with all those details, but I I do know a little bit about Steve Miller because because obviously he was in the Trump administration and whatever. But I do think you see it in in that kind of narrative, and you see it in a lot of the kind of alt right folks, and I you all also see it in Peter Thiel in these Stanford Review guys. And I would argue that they were, they helped create that model. And, and that, mm -hmm. now that model existed. And, and I think, you know, a couple years before Thiel's book came out, Dinesh D'Souza, who was, you know, one of the, you know, founding editors of the Dartmouth Review, which the Stanford Review is modeled against, wrote a very similar book called A Liberal Education. It's the same deal. It's just like attacking the you know college campuses treating college campuses as these bastions of conformity and, and that became a way 
in the 80s, which Teal totally took advantage of to make your name. Like if you want to get an internship at the Department of Education, which Peter Teal did as an undergraduate, being especially the Reagan era Department of Education, being in that swimming in that stream is, is a good way to do it. Being the kind of young conservative provocateur. And so I think that's I think Teal helped create the model for the alt-right, for some of these young guys who were pissed off and who are using that to, to be super provocative online. And he, but he was, like I said, swimming in a stream where that was a model. And I, I think I bring up this point in the book, but there's been a lot of good stuff written about kind of activist conservative politics. But I don't think people have realized that like a lot of that there's some thread between the activist conservative politics, which kind of values tactics that are maybe slightly underhanded or, or whatever. There are all these stories of people sneaking into the university building and like copying the names of, of people to get out this this newspaper that the administration doesn't want them and what's called in Silicon Valley growth hacking. And there's this concept in Silicon Valley that like you do what it takes to get your startup off the ground. Your startup is like a revolutionary movement. And so I think there's there are ways in which like that way of thinking the kind of conservative activism or, or activist mm -hmm. mindset in general kind of may have influenced the way that a lot of these startups and now unfortunately big companies behave and that's and I, I bring this up in the book but i think that's a really important thing this kind of ethos of disruption of like breaking the rules of doing what it takes to, to get your company off the ground that's really obviously that's ethically per perhaps ethically at any point but it becomes more problematic when you're talking about a really big, really powerful company. I don't think we 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 have as much of a problem with a tiny startup doing something underhanded because it's, it's just a tiny startup. They're doing what they have to do. But once it's like the world's third most valuable company or something that's like continuing to do the bad things, continuing to treat disruption, rule breaking as as a goal, as an end in itself. I think that's when things get out of hand. And that's where I think we're I would argue that we're seeing that with a lot of stuff that's happened with Facebook and also some of the other big tech companies. That's interesting. Yeah. I didn't know he got on the Department of Education with the, during the Reagan years. Uh, a book that you should read and everyone should read is Hate Monger about Stephen Miller by Jean Guerrero. That's who I was trying to remember her name earlier. I'm getting too old to remember stuff anymore. But there's an intertwining there. Uh, and, and Stephen Miller came up out of Larry Elder. And speaking of topical news, did Peter Thiel support the Larry Elder or anybody no, else? No, but you don't have to look. To, just like I was saying, the degrees of Peter Thiel, you don't have to go that far. So mm. David Sachs, who was one of those early Stanford Review guys. He co-wrote the book that I was talking about, Diversity Myth, with Teal about kind of the dangers of, quote-unquote, multiculturalism in college campuses. He and his wife were a major donor to the recall effort and certainly a major force pushing it and, and bringing some other tech money in. So Teal smartly stayed out of it. And Teal is very good, I have to say, at battles, finding battles that he can win. And if he loses, finding ways to like not necessarily take responsibility for that. But I think it's pretty telling. And maybe Gavin Newsom obviously won easily after weeks of hand-wringing and people were talking about how it was looking pretty bad. And I think Teal obviously smartly stayed away from that one. He has messed around in California politics before. And I actually believe, I'd have to double check, I think he's donated to, to Gavin Newsom. I actually, to David Sachs, guy funded the recall, pretty sure. But, uh, but in any case, he stayed out of it. He's definitely focusing most of his energy on these Senate races where they're also, I think, not necessarily like slam dunk elections, but I think they're fights that maybe are where there's more to be gained for him from for for somebody like Teal than the than the Newsom recall.
Yeah. And speaking to what you were saying earlier, I joined PayPal. I signed up for them back at the beginning. I don't know, maybe their first year or two. And back then it was like them against the banks. So like you say, they were fighting against what were at the time, the big guys. Now things have been really adopted and geez, even PayPal is picking up crypto now. Yeah. Um, so well, wait, I'm not now. Here's the thing. I'll sorry to cut you off, but I just, I mean, this is something I discovered in the book that I think is super interesting. So I'll just throw it out here. Early on, the ideology of PayPal was yes, yeah, buy stuff, buy, sell, and stuff online. But really, the thing that like Teal was like fixated on that he was talking to reporters about, that he was talking to, you know, employees about was this idea that once you have a PayPal wallet, right? you have this kind of digital money that is going to be very hard to control. Remember, he's a libertarian, conservative political activist. And there are comments that you can go back and find where he's talking about how this is going to give everyone their own private Swiss bank account. And and that is like and, and that's almost exactly what the way a lot of the crypto heads talk about crypto mm -hmm. now as this way to get around government regulation, make it super hard for the government to stop you. And so I think I think there's a way to see Teal and PayPal as like the ideological precursor. Teal's like the ideological godfather to crypto. Mm -hmm. Those ideas were very much like part of what PayPal was trying to do. They got maybe sidetracked or something by the need to survive. But the original plan was this kind of extreme libertarian vision about how money could be controlled or, or you know, not, not controlled. Yeah. Which is interesting is crypto can overthrow the U.S. government. And you, if it were to become, if cryptocurrency were to become the, you know, international standard, then uh, there goes your treasuries right out the window and your Federal Reserve and everything else. But no, you're right. Come to think of it, PayPal went through the same mark that crypto did. For a lot of years, the IRS wasn't involved. They didn't have their fingers. They didn't have any yeah. monitoring. And then one day, all of a sudden, on my PayPal account's like, we're going to start reporting to the IRS. Now, same thing with the crypto. Like, it's, it almost seemed to have a 10-year run before the IRS showed up when we should start monitoring this stuff and also money i think teal picked this up early and it's something that the crypto folks really appreciate but money is power and yeah. and if you control if you find ways it, governments that's one of the big things they do is they control money and i think it's no it's no accident that the next company that teal started after paypal was palantir which is this defense contractor mm -hmm. that started as an attempt to repackage a piece of technology or really an approach to security that PayPal developed because PayPal was trying to stop money launderers. And Teal had this notion that you could take that, sell it to the U U.S. government for the purpose of stopping terrorists. And remember, in 2001, 2002, 2003, the big focus of kind of U.S. law enforcement was like data mining. We screwed up. We missed the warning signs because we weren't looking at the data correctly. Here comes Peter Thiel, consummate entrepreneur. Hey, I've got a you know product to sell you. And and that becomes Palantir, this major defense contractor. Yeah, and it's definitely controversial. That was the next topic I was going to ask you about. So you led right into it. Pretty interesting with the Palantir. People have had a lot of different issues with it. Who's the gentleman who's Edward Snowden, I think, isn't too happy about, is he? I think he's brought it up uh, from time to time. I, I actually, it's interesting because Palantir position themselves, rightly or wrongly, as like a privacy-friendly data miner or something where they were like, we're data mining, but somehow we're data mining in a smart way, which is better than what the NSA was doing. I'm not sure if that's totally coherent, but that is what they tried to do. And I think backing up a bit, it, it was like for a long time, just 
this an idea, okay, like we're going to try to sell some software to the US government and trying to find some way to how do you make the how do you make something the government will buy? And so they went through a lot of things. What I think is troubling about Palantir to privacy advocates are two things. One is that data mining itself is a problem for privacy because if I if you look at somebody's, you know, Facebook browsing or whatever, you can figure out a lot of stuff about them that they might not want to re- reveal. You can figure out their sexual orientation. You figure out they're cheating on their spouse. You can figure out if, if they're pregnant. You probably can tell how many weeks pregnant they are based on exactly, wow. you know. So there's all kinds of things, right, that like that you or there been there was a great article uh, in the Times Magazine, I don't know, like 10 years ago by I think it was I can't remember who wrote it, but it was about how Target knows who's pregnant based on what they're buying, which obviously like makes a lot of sense. But but would you but like you actually haven't disclosed that to them. Yeah. And so, I'm going to buy diapers to throw them off. Exactly. You got to just mix it up every now and then to, yeah, that's a good OPSEC. <laughs> so in any case, there's this like broad concern that like if you give a company access to a big fire hose of data that's provided by the U.S. military or by Twitter or Facebook or any company, you're going to run into very quickly, you're going to run into privacy problems. And that was at the core of the Snowden, of some of what came out of the Snowden stuff, because they were looking at this metadata, which doesn't sound like that much, but then it can turn into a huge source of data. And then the other thing about Palantir that I think troubles people is that it's a company that doesn't seem, that, that it, it has turned this kind of big brotherish approach into almost like a sales pitch. So they're almost bragging about what they can do with Palantir, which I think is, it's not necessarily good for privacy. It, it may be whether or not they can actually do bad stuff. It's, it maybe is creating a permission structure that might allow another bad actor to come along and do the bad thing. So as I go, like once you're data mining, like even if you're super careful, even if you're the best data miner in the world, and I don't, I'm not saying Palantir is, but even if they were, right, it, it almost doesn't matter because another bad actor could come along and do the exact same thing, but do it worse. And what's stopping them? So that's the, the, the that's the sort of the broad issue that I think privacy advocates uh, worry about. And there's a bunch of other private stuff that Palantir is up to that no one knows about that they won't talk about, right? With the U.S. government, you don't know. They have a lot of con- they have a lot of government contracts. They're backed by the CIA. It's very easy to go wrong. It's very easy to like put the tinfoil hat on. As a journalist, right, I like to focus on the stuff that I think, in general, the things that are scandalous are not like the illegal things. They're the legal things. The things that are, it's often the most outrageous thing is the thing that's sitting there right in the open looking you in the face and i think yes like we it's obviously worth trying to figure out if palantir is also up to some other bad stuff but i think it's worth scrutinizing the the business that they talk about because it also raises a bunch of interesting what's interesting too is you tie in the cambridge Analytica influence from peter Thiel's Palantir and we all know how that turned out. At least those of us who are red. <laughs> yeah, that was a, that's a really interesting thread in the book. There's some news there. The, the bottom line is, so Cambridge Analytica is this not necessarily very effective data mining company that got caught trying to steal or access improperly Facebook data from millions of people. And the as I talk about in the book, that idea came from a guy who worked at Palantir. Now, I'm not the idea to steal it, but the exact the approach that they followed was proposed by a, a Palantir, basically a Palantir sales guy who was not working directly for Palantir. He was trying to drum up business, like maybe this will turn into something. I don't know. And that leads to this kind of this really 
scandalous behavior that calls into question both secured information security, election security, causes people to lose a lot of confidence in Facebook. And I think it came part of partly out of this kind of, as I was talking about earlier, this aggressive business culture where you're like, you've got to do something a little shady to, to, to close a deal. No problem. We're going to do it. And so in a way, this con- this employee, after it happened, Palantir says, oh no, this guy's a rogue employee. He had nothing, you know, we had nothing to do with it, which is of course true, but it's also not the complete story. Because as I write in the book, and I I talk to this engineer, there's an extent to which this is being, this is part of the kind of culture of the company. So it's like, and and of course, there are two sides to every story, who knows, but I think there is, I think there's a pretty, pretty compelling case that it, Cambridge Analytica grew out of this culture, ethical squishiness. And again, it's one of these things where, is that such a problem if we're talking about a small company? Probably not. If we're talking about a company that is involved with highly sensitive data security, is funded by the CIA, has, you know, now has hundreds of millions of dollars worth of contracts from the, if not billions of dollars in contracts from the US government, that starts to feel like maybe that should make us, I I don't know, it doesn't have to make you uncomfortable, but I think it's worth at, at least looking at closely and scrutinizing. We should definitely always follow the money and see where it goes. This is uh, a, a book, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show. This is, I wanted someone to write this book because <laughs> I was like, I want to know this guy better. I'm not going to read his stuff because he's just going to give me the PR version. Anything you want to tease out more on the book to readers before we go? Yeah. I. W- so one thing that we haven't talked about that I think is really important, which is there's this feeling that a lot of people know Peter Thiel as this Trump supporter. And I think uh, the book is real has a lot to say about how that happened and everything. But I also think it's worth thinking about where he's going and where this Trump movement is going. Because Peter Thiel is right now basically trying to help run it, to, to, to ha- harness or however you want to call it, the energy that elected Donald Trump. Because, because okay, maybe Donald Trump's going to run in 2024, maybe not. But there is a, this like really substantial part of the country that believes in the MAGA ideology. And Teal is making a play right now with money, using money and influence to to have a role in, in that future. And so you have, he's funding these candidacies of these very extreme far right. And it's really, they're almost calling it right left doesn't, doesn't capture, it's more like Trumpist candidates, Blake Masters and J.D. Vance. Blake Masters is the COO of Teal Capital and the president of the Teal Foundation. He works for Peter oh, Teal. Wow. J.D. Vance um, is was a, a partner at Mithril, which is one of Peter Teal's companies, and now runs a venture capital firm called Naria, which like Mithril is a kind of a Lord of the Rings. All the companies have Lord of the Rings names, but Teal is a major investor in that company. They're investing alongside one another. So I, I, to say J.D. Vance works for Peter Thiel is maybe a stretch, but obviously their financial interests are still very closely intertwined. Mm-hmm. And these guys, more importantly, are really like ideological extensions of wow. Thiel. They believe the things that that he believes for the most part. And, wow. and and so this is like a really this is and they could be on they could be senators. So I think it's really important to ask ourselves, what does this guy actually believe? Because and that's really what the book's about. And I, I think it's worth reading. I think it's worth talking about because his ideology and and his ambitions, they are going to continue to have an impact on, on the country. If, if you were paying closer, if we had been paying attention 
closer attention, I think, to what was happening on the alt-right and in the kind of tealverse in the lead up to Trump, it's possible that there would have been a more coherent response from Democrats because there really wasn't. I think it took everybody by surprise. Yeah. And I just think it's, I think this is a really important ideological movement that that bears watching because it's generating money, it's generating influence, and it's influencing the culture. So for all those reasons, it's worth paying attention to. Were you able to cover what his thoughts were about January 6th and the whole thing there? No, he's he's playing that one very close to the vest. But mm -hmm. I can say a few things. There were people who completely cut ties with Trumpism after January 6th. Peter Thiel is not one of them. And wow. Teal's ideological, I don't want to get too deep down the you know rabbit hole, but when you look at who are the people who he's swimming with ideologically, these guys, Vance, Masters, Josh Hawley, they have been in general, Hawley was the guy who was one of the objectors that was trying to stop the vote on January 6th. He, he as he walked into the Capitol on January 6th, he held up the fist, it looks like a kind of a fist of solidarity at the would-be insurrectionists. I don't think he's totally distancing himself from that. And I think that there is a strain of Tealism. I don't know if Teal himself actually believes it. I don't know if it even matters. But there's a, a strain of this kind of extreme right nationalism that sort of regards January 6th at a trial for something new. And you, you're seeing this in the kind of far people talking about an American, we have an American Caesar. And what does that mean, an American Caesar? It means a fascist dictator. So there is this, and again, I don't know if Thiel actually himself believes it, but definitely people in his orbit are really at the very least kind of playing footsie with some very kind of extreme politics. Yeah. It's very dangerous. Shortly after January 6th, we we had Tom Hartman on. We went a couple times, the radio uh, show host, and he hit me at the end of the show. He goes, you know what they call January 6th, don't you? And I go, what? He goes, practice, rehearsal. Yeah, yeah. I, hopefully that's not the case. And it's, it's very hard to know. And that's one of the powerful things about tro about trolling, uh, pro pro provocation, contrarianism. Like, yeah. it's hard to know what people actually believe because mm -hmm. maybe, because do they really think it's practice or are they just trying to take the piss or something? And so that's, there's some sense, maybe it's all just a big show, but uh, on, at some point it stops mattering, right? It's, you don't need... You don't need that many people to believe in a, in violence to, to really create some horrible things. You don't. If you study fascism through history, it's, yeah, it doesn't take much, uh, but it does take violence. It's been wonderful to have you on the show, Max. Very Thanks, insightful Chris. and an incredible book. Very thick tome. I, I love the coverage you did on him. And it helps me understand what this man is about more because you you, you look at people like him and, and others that, that you're just like, you're really against what you are. Actions speak louder than words. And like you say, he can be as secret as you want. And you've covered a lot about him, but his actions are going to definitely do it. So thank you very much for coming on the show and spending time with us today. Hey, thanks, Chris. It was really fun. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Max. Can you uh, give us your plugs again so people yeah, can find you on the interwebs? I will, I will plug. So the book is called The Contrarian. You can buy it uh, anywhere uh, books are sold. I've got some links on my website, Max Chafkin, M-A-X-C-H-A-F-K-I-N.com. I am at Chafkin on Twitter. And yeah, definitely uh, stay tuned. Hopefully we'll be covering this going forward. There you go. Well, he's got quite a few years left. You can do a second volume on the rest of his life and whatever. <laughs> so there you go. Folks, order up the book. You can go to anywhere fine books are sold. Uh, September 21st, 2021. You're going to want to pre-order. That's 2121, I just noticed. You want to take and uh, pre-order that so you can be the first one on your block to read it. The Contrarian. 
Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power. Definitely get that baby ordered up. To see the video version of this, go to youtube.com, fortunate Chris Voss, hit the bell notification button. It will complete your life and everything you've been missing, or maybe not. Uh, go to goodreadsface.com, fortunate Chris Voss, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, all those different places. We certainly appreciate it. Be good to each other, stay safe, and we'll see you guys next time. So we're excited to announce my new book is coming out. It's called Beacons of Leadership, Inspiring Lessons of Success in Business and Innovation. It's going to be coming out on October 5th, 2021. And I'm really excited for you to get a chance to read this book. It's filled with a multitude of my insightful stories, lessons, my life, and experiences in leadership and character. I give you some of the secrets from my CEO entrepreneur toolbox that I use to scale my business success, innovate, and build a multitude of companies. I've been a CEO for, uh, what is it, like uh, 33, 35 years now. We talk about leadership, the importance of leadership, how to become a great leader, and how anyone can become a great leader as well. So you can pre-order the book right now wherever fine books are sold, but the best thing to do on getting a pre-order deal is to go to beaconsofleadership.com. That's beaconsofleadership.com. On there, you can find several packages you can take advantage of in ordering the book. And for the same price of what you can get it from someplace else like Amazon, you can get all sorts of extra goodies that we've taken and given away. Uh, different collectors, limited edition, custom-made numbered book plates that are going to be autographed by me. There's all sorts of other goodies that you can get when you buy the book from beaconsofleadership.com. So be sure to go there, check it out, or order the book wherever fine books are sold.